Thank you for calling Gaywire. Your call is very important to us. Press 1 for fourth wave feminism. Press 2 for a strangely in-depth discussion about where the worms have gone. Press 3 for... You have chosen option 3. Please stay on the line. Hello and thank you for choosing option three. You've reached Gaywire, where everything is at least a little bit queer. I'm your hot and humble host, Terrence Adams, and my pronouns are they, them, and they, he. I'll accept he, him, and he, they, which is arguably the same as they, he, but also arguably not the same. There are some pronouns I don't love, but I won't tell you which ones those are. If you're listening to this, you're most likely listening to us on the podcast. Thank you so much. You could be anywhere in the world right now, yet you're listening to Gaywire. Gaywire is still and always produced for CJSR 88.5 FM and Amiskwichiwiskaigen on Treaty 6 territory and Region 4 of the Métis Nation of Alberta, colonially known as Edmonton, Alberta, land which has been the traditional home and traveling ground of many diverse peoples, including but not limited to the Blackfoot, Anishinaabe, Nakota Sioux, Soto, Dene, Cree, and Métis people. And a little update for you podcast baddies out there, we will be trying to add some transcripts of the audio for those who find it difficult to only process things auditorily and would prefer something to read. Um, so that should be available wherever you get your transcripts, um, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm not making any promises about how often this will happen, but I will try to do it sometimes. And that is a gay wire guarantee. This episode is going to be a long one, like a really long one. Like it will most likely be three episodes on the radio big. I haven't quite decided where I'm going to splice the interview yet, but for now, we're just going to hear from Q Lawrence. Q Lawrence is of course the disability justice activist that we have been talking to for um, a while now. I talked to Q last year to talk about Bill C-7, made and all of those things. And now we're going to get an update about their work this year. I interviewed them May 2nd of 2022, and we talk about the current disability filibuster, along with some more talks about being crip, being queer, and trying to survive eugenics policies. If you haven't listened to parts one and two, to give you a little bit of background information, please do scroll up on the podcast feed or scroll down if you have it set up that way and find those episodes so you can listen to them and have some context um, as we move into our current discussion as it stands. So we talk the current disability filibuster, talks about being crip, being queer, and trying to survive eugenics policies. And that being said, of course, I would like to give a bit of a content warning for this upcoming interview. Talks of suicide, violence against disabled people, ableism in all its forms, and discussion of eugenics, which is again ableism, but also has deep ties to colonialism, racism, and uh, capitalism. We do also mention very briefly violence against indigenous people. We, we talk, we, we touch on a lot of heavy topics. We do touch on a lot of heavy topics here, so do take care of your body minds and ensure that you are listening and engaging with this information sustainably, particularly if you are someone who has experienced it. 
So I invite you all to sit back, relax, maybe do the dishes, maybe you're driving, but whatever you're doing, please allow yourself to get a little more comfortable, whatever that means for you. There are a couple of clarification things about the interview I would like to provide now. So when yesterday is talked about, Q is referring to May 1st, 2022. And there is also one second where the audio cuts out while Q is saying the term land back and talking about indigenous sovereignty. But uh, yeah, when they say land and then they like cut out, they're, they're saying land back. And then for some other context, this bit is heavy. It's contextualizing eugenics. At one point in the interview, there is a name of a person that you can't quite think of. Uh, they refer to them as Jefferson, and the person in question that they were thinking of was Tommy Douglas, the father of universal health care in Canada. But he is also known for supporting eugenics practices. Support for eugenics in 20th century Canada was not rare. Feminist activists like Emily Murphy and Nunley McClung, who arguably have changed our lives for the better, also supported sterilization legislation aimed to stop prostitution, alcoholism, and mental defectiveness. Tommy Douglas's master thesis was titled Problems of the Subnormal Family and encourages sterilization of those with mental deficiencies or incurable diseases. Though as Premier of Saskatchewan, he rejected sexual sterilization laws similar to those that were active in Alberta and BC, it's, it does not neglect the fact that he did hold those beliefs to the extent that he wrote his master's thesis on them and had those sort of values um, informing much of his work. Now, just to keep us all up to date on Alberta politics, here is a quick history of eugenics legislation in Alberta. Information courtesy from the Canadian Encyclopedia where this next portion is directly lifted from. This portion is the history of eugenics legislation in Alberta. In 1928, the Alberta government passed the Sexual Sterilization Act. There was broad public support for this legislation, which was passed by the United Farmers of Alberta under Premier John Edward Brownlee. The act established a eugenics board with the power to authorize the sexual sterilization of certain individuals who had been institutionalized under the Mental Diseases Act and Mental Defectives Act and recommended for release. According to the 1928 Sexual Sterilization Act, patients could be sterilized if the board is unanimously of opinion that the patient might safely be discharged if the danger of procreation with his attendant risk of multiplication of the evil by transmission of disability to progeny were eliminated. So just because that was a whole lot of gobbledygook, um, basically patients could be sterilized if the board agrees that the only thing stopping the patient from being released from the hospital is the fact that they could procreate and potentially make more people with their same conditions, um, which they refer to as the evil of disability. Consent was required either from the patient or their parent, guardian, or spouse. Not and. In 1937, the act was amended, removing the need for informed consent from those considered mentally defective. According to the 1937 amendments, such persons could be sterilized to prevent the transmission of mental disability or deficiency or to avoid the risk of mental injury, either to such person or to his progeny. Similarly, psychotic patients could be sterilized to prevent the transmission of mental disease or the risk of mental injury. In 1942, the act was altered yet again, expanding its scope to include the candidates who had not been institutionalized. 
both amendments were passed by the social credit government led by William Aberhart. The Alberta legislation was repealed in 1972 by Peter Lougheed's progressive conservative government. During the 44 years in which the legislation was in effect, the Eugenics Board approved 4,000 725 cases for sterilization, of which 2,834 were carried out. On the books. In 1996, an Alberta court awarded approximately $740,000 in damages to Leilani Muir, who had been wrongly sterilized at age 14 while she was a patient at the Provincial Training School for Mental Defectives. Hundreds of other sterilization survivors have since come forward and settled out of court with the province. So over 2,800 people were sterilized under the Alberta legislation, which is a lot of people. BC, which had similar legislation, sterilized between 200 and 400. It's hard to know the exact numbers. 2,000 is more than 400. It's also interesting to note the dates, 1928, 1937. Adolf Hitler was appointed German Chancellor in 1933, and World War II started in 1939. When people say that the Nazis got inspiration for eugenics from Canada, they're talking about Alberta. And though the sterilization legislation was repealed in the 1970s, people, indigenous people, particularly indigenous women, are still to this day coerced into sterilization. And many women have been forced to sign consent forms for tubal litigation while in labor. I don't share this for the shock value, I share this because it is important to understand understand the fabric of Canada, the way that our medical system has worked. This is only a fraction of it, and I can't spend too much time on it because Q has a lot to say. But I hope that this gives you enough of a background to uh, encourage you to do your own research into this and also to help you engage with the interview to come. So now, without further ado, here's Q. I am Q Lawrence, and I use it or they pronouns. I am an educator. I'm an organizer. I'm also a death doula. Um, so I educate um, individuals, community members, uh, and organizations about disability justice which is a political framework, as well as disability culture and history. Um, and I organize with disability justice at the forefront of my work. Um, I am one of two uh, founding and organizing members of the Chilliwack Free Fridge. Yeah, that's kind of where my organizing is at at the moment, um, is in mutual aid. Um, for the larger goal of like abolition and uh, collective liberation. Um, and I'm a death doula or what I call a grassroots death doula. Um, I help people through the, the ends of their lives and um, processing what that means to them and maybe their family and community. Last time we talked about the history of disability uh, fairly briefly. Um, so we started off with the, the fact that the Industrial Revolution and capitalism ultimately um, works to define bodies that are able to produce as able and those that aren't as disabled. Would you like to sort of 
go into that a little bit? Yeah, we can we can dig into that a little bit if you would like. Um, I mean, you you summed it up very tidily right there. Is really that is the Western um, concept concept and conception of um, disability as uh, a political identity currently. Um, and in those frameworks is included um, chronic illness and chronic pain conditions because that is by nature subtracting from one's ability to contribute to capitalism. It also includes mental illness, intellectual disabilities, and the deaf and hard of hearing community um, has its own culture and um, identity within that and sometimes apart from that. But I mean, you, you really did summarize it there. Um, it, it is in, in the political framework that, that is essentially how that came to be. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's just good to sort of situate ourselves um, in the framework of disability justice. But what we're really here to talk about today is Bill C-7, which of course is a very, very heavy topic and one that only gets heavier. For listeners who might not know what Bill C-7 is. Um, could you sort of describe what it is and uh, what it does? Totally. So um, Bill C-7 is an amendment to Bill C-14. And C-14 is um, a bill to allow doctors to administer um, a lethal dose of um, medication for initially in C14, it was for um, patients that were nearing the end of their lives or had a natural death in sight, um, whether that be by age or by illness. Um, and it was um, to ease the suffering of people who are already dying. Um, C7 came in last year. It's a federal bill um, taken at the Supreme Court um, to amend that to people who are considered um, to be experiencing grievous and irremediable um, suffering is the language they use. Um, and by the bill's description of that, that includes disabled people and only disabled people. Um, it was passed last year, um, um, a year ago last month. Um, and um, yeah, it allows doctors to administer that lethal dose to people who are not terminally ill, do not have a natural death in sight. Usually that's considered like six months, but that really varies um, according to the condition under C14. Under C7, that's negated entirely um, under this track two. Um, and it is really up to the doctors, um, like the, the administering doctors, judgment whether someone is experiencing grievous and irremediable suffering. Um, it also changes the wait period. It 
Now I'm a little bit rusty on this because it wasn't, um, it's not the fo my focus this year with the bill already passed, but I think it removes the 90 day wait period as well. Um, so previously um, one had to, you know, apply. And if one was approved, there was kind of a 90 day like consideration period um, where someone could, you know, change their mind. Um, and to my knowledge, C7 removes that requirement. Um, and currently, um, we are facing uh, the sunset clause. So last year, this Bill C7 was applied to um, physical conditions. Um, the suffering had to be um, like chronic pain or um, similar such illness. Um, and this year, what's currently being considered um, for the next, I think, four weeks, because three have already passed, um, it may be another five weeks, but it's a seven week total um, debate or consideration period um, about whether mental illness can be a sole qualifying factor for people to apply for and qualify for medical assistance in dying or MAID. Um, and yeah, that's that's what's currently um, being discussed in special committees. There was supposed to be one today, but it was actually canceled. Um, there's some rumors about why, but no factual information just yet. Um, the hopes are that uh, some of the advocacy work that's being done around this is um, making the government reconsider their process. But yeah, that's the summary of C7 and the current the current questions up for up for debate and um, consideration. Oh, there's actually a second part that's also currently up for uh, consideration is a mature minor track, which is that minors, um, some considered as low as 14, um, should be allowed to apply for made independently. Um, so that is also um, part of the sunset clause that I mentioned. Yeah, as I as I mentioned at the top, a heavy topic that just gets heavier. Yeah. So would you like to sort of go into your uh, current work as it stands uh, re regarding made? Absolutely. Yes. Um, so, um, Gabrielle Peters and Catherine Frizee last year, um, organized, uh, what's dubbed the disability filibuster, um, and it went, um, during the, um, federal debates, um, in like Senate, um, and in the house, um, trying to get disabled people who are not in support of this um, bill or its current amendment um, speaking up for our communities and what we see as the problems. And we were ultimately unsuccessful um, in swaying public and government opinion, which we 
predicted, um, but it was good to be in community during these conversations. Um, and this year, Gabrielle and Catherine have brought the filibuster back in a modified way. Um, so um, I've been working with them in my own small part to have a broadcast every week. Um, this week we had two um, because we had a special edition, um, but trying to get different voices on, um, on the filibuster talking about, again, what we see as the problems, um, the underlying ableism and the daily realities of what disabled people face in so-called Canada. Um, the special edition that I mentioned was in particular speaking with people who um, were on the special committee um, that is examining this um, sunset clause. Um, who are against um, expanding it to mental illness and mature minors. Um, and they, in, in our opinion, they were not given the time or respect um, that they ought to have been or that people who are for the sunset clause were given. Um, in one person's case, they were shouted over um, by, I believe, a sitting senator. Um, and language was used against these people that, I mean, I'm not for tone policing or respectability politics. I drop foul language left and right. But to hear it coming from government who are supposed to be showing due process and are supposed to be conducting themselves with a certain amount of decorum um, to hear it coming from them directed at people who have an opinion that or you know professional experience that goes against our government officials um, was shocking but unsurprising <laughs> um, so yeah, that, that one, all of these are, are on the Disability Filibuster website, um, which I'm sure you can link. I can share it with you if you don't already have it. But these are all archived in some manner. And yeah, that was, that was one such session was talking with these people that did not get a chance to express some really important insights and um, professional experience. Other sessions have been um, community members talking about medical ableism. Um, a future session is going to be about everyday ableism that disabled people face in Canada. Um, future sessions on poverty, because that is a factor in a lot of disabled people applying for MAID. So yeah, that is the current efforts, um, is this, collective raising of our voices and allied voices um, saying that this process is un, unjust and unfair and also saying that not every disabled person and in fact many disabled people um, are very wary of the steps that the government is taking to 
um, give us a right to die, as they say, before giving us the right to a fulfilling and um, equal life, um, a chance at actually having housing <laughs> that is accessible, um, having food that is, you know, good food, having community, having um, callings, whether that is in employment or not, um, all of these things are um, not supplied by the government. And yet they're so ready to offer us death. It's really the crux of it. I'm probably going to mention this a couple of times, but um, everyone who is listening right now should go to disabilityfilibuster.ca right this second and sign up for these. Make sure you register. Um, you don't have to register. I've registered for some of them and then some of them I forget to register and then I just watch them um, on the website. Um, but they're all fantastic. Um, I took advantage of my partner's um, infinite data uh, to uh, watch one of these live streams uh, while driving to Calgary. Um, absolutely worth it. Killed his phone to nothing. He was kind of upset with me, but you know. Um, so disabilityfilibuster.ca, um, register for these. Uh, they're ongoing. Um, for obviously quite quite some time. Um, they are continuing for as long as um, there is funding to put them on accessibly. So that means captioning and ASL interpretation primarily. Um, and the website, I think, also links to the GoFundMe. Uh, if you're, <laughs> um, you know, you have $5 to throw in for that accessibility. Um, but yes, absolutely, I agree. Going to the website, listening to disabled people is really essential and um, not done enough. Absolutely. Something that you mentioned briefly last time, I re-listened to our interview uh, this morning, so it was fresh in my mind. Um, the way that MAID is being handled is a eugenics policy, but it is not the only eugenics policy um, employed by Canada um, against uh, deviant mm -hmm. people, uh, whether that be disabled, queer, trans, um, black and brown, uh, Indigenous people. Um, do you want to talk a little bit more about about the history of eugenics and um, sort of the, the ways that it manifests itself in the present day? Absolutely. Um, one thing on that that's been on my mind in particular during these um, broadcasts with the filibuster and honestly almost all the time lately as a disabled person who accesses uh, healthcare like three times a week on a schedule um, is um, the way that found universal healthcare. Um, wow, brain fog. Jefferson, I want to say Jefferson, um, was, is also considered the father of eugenics. Um, the way that he um, set up our healthcare system to not include 
pharmacare, to not include dental care, to not include um, optometry, is in like part of the eugenics application in that people who are genetically disposed to having dental problems and eye problems um, or people who need lifelong medication, uh, for example, are not implicitly covered by Canada's healthcare system. Um, and I feel like that in and of itself colored the way that our entire um, healthcare, the, the ways that our society is set up, um, it makes it so that we don't prioritize systems of care. Um, our healthcare is good for emergencies. If you have um, a one and done situation, but you're otherwise healthy, um, you are typically taken care of. If you have longer term medical conditions, if you have um, congenital illnesses or disabilities, um, anything like that, uh, you're not included in the society that Jefferson and all of our continuing um, representatives and officials envision. Um, and that includes poor people. That includes, as you said, black and brown people. It really includes queer and trans people in a way that I think queer and trans people don't always align themselves with dis disability and deviance in that, um, in that vision. Um, yeah, so that, that is one glaring example is that the, the creator of our healthcare system was again, the father of eugenics. Um, we also have ongoing uh, systems called like birth alerts and they're not supposed to happen anymore, but there's a lot of awareness in indigenous communities, especially and in um, street-based communities and uh, communities of poor people that they are still very much a reality. Um, if an indigenous person has a child, the government is alerted. Um, MCFD, the Ministry of Children and Family Development in BC is alerted. Um, there's, um, yeah, there's an awareness of that reality in indigenous communities that I think white, and non-Indigenous uh, populations just don't realize and don't experience. Um, and that is another glaring um, example of uh, the, the ways that, you know, this eugenics idea of who should be having children, who should be increasing population um, is, is very much um, perpetuated. Um, yeah. And yeah. along with like, who, who's making these decisions about exactly. who should deserve to live. Yeah, precisely. Um, who, who is in positions of power and even like when we do have, 
you know, representation in those positions of power, very often they have had to sell out um, their ethics, their morality, their um, community affiliations in order to get to that place, in order to um, take part in that system of power and that structure of power. Um, I actually think uh, one other um, example that I want to highlight because it's often neglected, especially in disability spaces, is drug users, um, which um, for many reasons, a lot related to stigma and again, groups aligning themselves with power in order to survive and get ahead. Um, drug user groups are often left out of disability conversations. And in Canada, mo most of my knowledge is based in BC because it's where I live. Um, but in Canada, the so-called opioid epidemic has been going on for six years now. And um, it is considered a public health emergency, but it's not addressed as such. And it affects groups that are already facing disproportionate amounts of systemic violence. You know, a lot of disabled people turn to illicit substances because we can't get what we need from legal routes. Um, and then there's a lot of black and brown people that have to address systemic and generational trauma through illicit substances because again, they're not getting the support or the medication or the therapy or the cultural tools in order to grapple with that um, in another way. Um, and the government continues to not address the root causes of the what I call thanks to Karen Ward the um, either the drug toxicity crisis or really the drug policy crisis um, and especially if um, the sunset clause of mental illness um, being a sole determining factor passes um, drug user populations and especially drug users in poverty are going to be represented in those statistics at an alarming rate. Um, we're already, like even before C7 was passed, we were already seeing people applying for aid due to poverty, due to inability to get safe housing, all of these things. C7 passing made that even more of a reality and um, the mental illness clause will take us another step down that path um, in terms of who can get access and who is encouraged to access made over um, other resources that are not funded adequately. Why, why do you think the government is expanding made instead of investing in these other supports that could greatly improve people's lives? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an obvious question, but it's also one that's important to actually articulate and, and put down. Um, there's a lot of things to speculate on, um, but I think it comes down to the fact that it's very interesting that C7 came up a year into the COVID pandemic. Um, and COVID 
uh, is mass disabling. A lot of people, I think about 25% was the last number that I saw. Um, 25% of people who have COVID develop long COVID symptoms. So they have um, like dysautonomia, dysregulation of their central nervous system, they have chronic fatigue, they have um, heart and lung and um, cognitive symptoms that are incredibly disabling. And I think it is economical for the government to fund um, medical assistance in dying over affirming disabled lives. And it, so it's economical is one point. And the other side of that, that continues from there is if you put into the social um, fabric that dying is preferable to disability, more people will opt for it voluntarily. Um, and won't question that idea. Um, we're seeing with a lot of newly disabled people that they're already, I would say, indoctrinated with this idea that death is better than a permanent disability. And you know, disabilities are difficult. They're painful, they're exhausting, they are difficult. Um, but there's also a lot of affirming, and joyous realities to it and community about it. And that's not in the government's interest to highlight. Um, disabled people do need more and different resources. Um, and yeah, essentially MADE really just is a capitalist project as are all eugenics really. And yeah, to me, that is that is the biggest factor is the economics of it. And from there, the, the social fabric that it continues to pick apart and and deny. I have. Uh, I was talking to my sister the other day um, about this. Uh, and she she's in grade 11, so she was learning about nationalism and she was talking about the Nazis and the eugenics having to do with that and um then she she said very very succinctly um when I when I described made she was like huh this this reminds like it, it just always comes back to eugenics doesn't it absolutely um it always comes back to eugenics mm -hmm. that's true it really does it does always come back to eugenics um you look at I think almost every social and systemic inequality and it comes back to who is fit to be society and who is unfit to be society and who as you said who is making those decisions canada's colonial project and america's colonial project of um the genocide against indigenous people inspired the nazis um it, it gave them ideas on what to do for their own eugenics projects. Um, it's in their notes. It's documented that they took direct inspiration from the North American projects of eugenics. And to me, that really highlights how everything that we have as nations um, is rotten all the way down to the ground. It's, it's all built on 
terrible violent foundations and it doesn't it doesn't need to be the way it is we don't need to continue in this um in this vein um of violence I, it's not working for anyone no no it's really not except for of course those few that it is working for but you can count how many of those people yeah. are on one hand it's true. um so then what do we do how do we how do we build a better future how do we get through this Mm -hmm. um on the largest scale i think it all comes back to land um because i think that it's essential um you know indigenous people took care of this land before colonial projects and um it should just be given back um but on a on a smaller scale um like fighting the way that disabled people have been fighting for the past year and for even longer. Um, many disabled people were fighting C7 and made expansions for years. Um, and listening to disabled people, directing resources and attention towards disabled people is, is one path that I think um, is is always effective <laughs> it really does work is uh you know oh as i said like the the special the the committee that was supposed to meet today um did not meet it was canceled um and as i said there's a lot of speculation on why and i i do think that a large part of it is because this bill is getting negative press attention on an international scale now, um, which is what we were hoping for last year <laughs> before uh, C7 was passed, but you know, we'll, we'll take it now. Um, so yeah, like directing attention where it's, where it's needed. Um, and you know, the, the filibuster is, is one, one avenue for that, but just following um, the news about it. Um, and like this kind of thing, this like talking about the systemic issues in, in a way that is critical and um, highlights what oppressed people are saying and listening to that and sharing that. And, you know, as you said, you were talking to your sister about it. Like if everyone genuinely, if everyone like talked to one or two people in their networks, um, it would it would have a much larger impact and you know those are people who are voting <laughs> those are people who have funds to direct and on a small scale that is how we can affect some change um also just like resourcing your communities so that people have what they need i'm i mostly organize in mutual aid at this point because I feel like that is where I can affect the most change is um, talking to people directly and asking what do other people need? What do I need? What can we share and, and engage in and collaborate on um, so that our communities are not turning to something like MAID um, because they don't have housing or they don't have food. Like, how can you individually link up with one, two, three other people and organize mutual aid on the ground that is directly benefiting people and spreading 
political knowledge and thinking. Yeah, like those, <laughs> those are places to start really. Um, to start talking about and organizing around critical um, resourcing issues that are at the foundation of eugenics is denying resources, it's denying safety. And if we collectively work against that denial, um, people have a much better chance of actually surviving and existing, <laughs> which really is the goal is that we're all surviving together and pushing for better futures. You mentioned last time along the same vein, um, it's the idea of, of struggling for, for everyone, not, not just ourselves. Um, exactly. So do you want to sort of elaborate a bit uh, about the the sort of inherent kinship that is built into disability justice? Yeah. Um, disability justice comes from black and brown queer communities um, that were responding to a lack of collective struggle. Um, not a single one of our issues exists alone. You talk about eugenics and you're talking about so many populations and communities that are um, struggling against whiteness, essentially, whiteness and uh, colonial capitalism at its core. Um, so DJ looks at that and says, how are we all getting through this together? Um, and it recognizes the inherent humanity of each person involved in any organizing, any struggle that is for survival. And it says, you are whole without doing anything. You are inherently valuable. And then it looks at the entire group and says that again. It says, you are already whole. You are already valuable. You are already contributing um, worth to your community just by existing. And from there, it's really easy to be in, as you said, I really value that word is kinship. It's really easy to be in kinship when you recognize that your wholeness is not um, dependent upon capitalist worth and neither is anyone around you. And if we are to all get free, um, that wholeness needs to be reflected in all of our systems. It needs to be reflected in all of our organizing. Um, the ways that we do everything needs to reflect our inherent worth. Um, and um, I think that it's, it takes that reality and, um, applies it to <laughs> disability, which is so often um, considered brokenness and deficiency. And um, it says in a critical way, like there is nothing that can take away from your individual and collective wholeness. Um, there's no way of being um, as you exist in the world that negates your needs or your worth. Um, so yeah, it, it 
it recognizes that in incarcerated people, it recognizes that in drug users, it recognizes that in black and brown people, people in poverty, um, people who are, again, systemically told that we are not worth the resources that we are given or that we need. Um, and yeah, I think that that is um, the beauty of EJ is that collective struggle is considered a worthwhile project because we are worthwhile. Um, yeah, our freedom is worthwhile as well. This goes a little bit back, I think, um, but my mind's all over the place. Um, something that has bothered me, it hasn't sat right with me, mm -hmm. that um, it seems that people, um, I found this when I try to talk to people about it, people don't understand the severity of MADE being expanded until I talk about the sunset clause, until I include people with mental illness. And that they, and I th think that's a Mm -hmm. huge amount of cognitive dissonance um, mm -hmm. when engaging with this, that there's this separation between mental yeah. and physical stuff. First, I guess the, the term body-mind is integral to disability justice, and um, I, I think understanding mm -hmm. the idea of body-mind really undoes that, that separation. Um, yeah, um, so anyway, would yeah. you like to sort of speak to that in any way? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I love the word body-mind. It is written by different disability justice thinkers in different ways. Some hyphenate it, some put a slash between the two words, some I personally put it together as one word. But using the word body-mind in relation to ourselves is about recognizing that there, <laughs> like, there is no separation between who we think of ourselves as and our physical being like there there is no actual separation between that and that's as as someone who's been traumatized and mentally ill my entire life it's very strange to me to consider but it's also really important to me as well um the the medical industrial complex separates the two western medicine separates the two um for the sake of, I think, tidiness. It's easier to say, oh, this is mental illness and this is physical illness, um, than to sit down and like recognize that your body influences your brain and your brain is your body. Um, so yeah, I really agree with what you said that that I have the same experience that um, people recognize the risk when you say mental illness as a sole qualifying factor is dangerous, but they don't recognize it when it's said about physical disability or physical illness. Um, I think it's so ingrained in us that physical illness is unchangeable and it is always dreadful and the worst thing and anyone experiencing physical illness and disability um, will want to die. Um, and that is not a result of the circumstances that physically disabled people are put through. Um, and that, that suicidal ideation is not 
you know, due to systemic inequality and lack of uh, conscientious and timely treatment. But they recognize those things about mental illness at times, if that's if that's where they're coming to understanding um, the danger of C7 and the sunset clause. They often get stuck at that point of, well, yes, mental illness is unpredictable and treatment can take time. And sometimes you just need to, you know, accept that um, depression is a part of your life or schizophrenia is a part of your life. That period of mourning a past self, trying new treatments, um, getting into accessible housing, getting your needs met is very similar for disabled people who have physical disabilities and physical chronic illnesses. Um, again, it's that language of grievous and irremediable. Irremediable by whose standard? Uh, new treatments come out all the time. There is so much pain medication that is withheld. Um, there are so many housing options that are again withheld. What do these people mean by grievous and irremediable? And they honestly have not yet been able to define it themselves to a degree that satisf satisfies me or other advocates in any way. Like they, they themselves can't give it a clear definition. So why are they passing that into law? Like, why is that separation of self being passed into law um, when they can't even give adequate language to it themselves? So it it all it all comes down to yeah. like one we have to stop this um, in the in the legal system, but until then we have to stop community members from partaking in state-sanctioned suicides when their needs are ignored time and time again. So how, how do we do that? How, how do we keep surviving? That, that is the question of the century. <laughs> that is what is on all of our minds at all times, I think, when you're organizing and, uh, you know, I, I said on, there was a filibuster broadcast yesterday um, and I did the closing kind of moment of remembrance um, for people who have access made or disabled people who have died for other reasons due to systemic injustice um, is I've I've known a lot of people who have access made and I'm always thinking about like what how can we get people the resources they need and the uh, the the will and the ability to push through um, what is sometimes like insurmountable systemic violence. Um, and I mean, it's it's really creating spaces where people can be their whole selves. Um, you know, especially in you know we're still in a pandemic. And a lot of the non-disabled people are moving on with their lives uh, without attention to access. 
like that, that is one way you do not keep people alive is continuing to do things, A, that people, that put people at like physical risk of catching a disabling and fatal illness, but you also don't keep people alive by creating inaccessibility. Um, isolation and loneliness are on par with, I think it's heart disease in terms of the damage it does to your body. <laughs> like, And disabled people, I can't remember the percentage, but we experience a disproportionate amount of isolation and loneliness due to in a, like inaccessibility. So like you, you wanna keep people alive, think about access, think about um, access forward events and movements. Um, how do you anticipate and address accessibility needs? How do you, um, you know, create political organizing that is accessible to deaf, to blind, to intellectually disabled, to all of these disabled communities. And there are really fantastic ways to do it. You know, um, incorporating ASL and alternative texts, um, incorporating virtual meetings, if you are doing in-person meetings, because that's also an access need. A lot of poor people have unreliable internet. <laughs> if they have any internet at all. Um, but like, yeah, you get creative, I think is the way we keep people alive is by being creative and being mindful of the fact that we want people, we want disabled people in our communities. Um, we don't want to leave people behind. We don't want to isolate people. We want to give people space to talk and breathe and cry and celebrate like all, together um that and just some affordable housing <laughs> like yes <laughs> yeah and it but, sounds like very yeah. much um centering that that idea of every person has worth in inherent worth yeah. inherent wholeness inherent yeah yeah okay yeah. um accessible housing very important um did you want to talk about the fact that um, disability income is itself a eugenics policy that works to keep disabled people in <sighs> abject poverty, unable to form uh, stereotypical family structures? It really is. I mean, um, it, it varies from province to province. And it's also important to note that Indigenous people living on reservation get even less money than most provinces. Um, in BC, um, you get a maximum of $1,384, like $1,384, I think, is the monthly maximum rate. And that includes the $375 that the government allots for housing. Um, that's what they think disabled people in BC are paying for housing or can pay for housing. Um, and I just have to laugh because it's so absurd. I have like the only housing you can get in that case is social housing, which is often inaccessible for many people. And the accessible housing that is out there is tiny. Um, so, you know, that it's again, it's, it's weeding out the poor disabled people. There are privileged disabled people who um, 
have enough money to live and will often separate themselves from disabled people in poverty. I'm thinking of some choice BC politicians um, that make my blood boil, um, that say that if they can survive and live uh, a, as you said, you know, hitting those um, stereotypical benchmarks for success, whether it's through family or employment, career, um, if they can do it, then any of us can, completely negating their financial class privilege. I think ODSP, the Ontario Disability Income, the rates have been frozen for many years. I can't bring it to mind directly. It might be 13. Um, but those rates have been frozen, not accounting for inflation, not accounting for, um, you know, just the rising cost of living everywhere in Canada. Um, and they're expected to live on something like $970 maximum. Um, that's, that's abysmal. That's, that's not, that's not possible. And as you said, you can't, you can't create even a nuclear family on that kind of income. You also, if you get married, um, you are likely to lose the entirety of your income. Um, if you um, live with and are partners with another disabled person, um, you lose half of your income, um, at least in BC. These things are just not sustainable for life. <laughs> like they just don't give disabled people a chance at um, getting out of poverty ever. We're just not, we're also not allowed to have a certain, like above a certain amount of savings. Again, it's different for every province. Um, and we can't make above a certain amount of supplemental income. Um, so if your functioning abilities are variable um, and say some months you could have a part-time job, um, that's not, that's not possible. You're not allowed to do that um, for, for most disabled people. It's, it's just, it's not, um, it doesn't engage disabled people in what we consider social benchmarks. And um, it's, it's really another way to further isolate disabled people. Um, we had a woman on the broadcast yesterday who is worried that she'll lose her income assistance entirely um, because, again, of having a partner and having a child and, like, having love in your life and having a child should not be a source of financial fear for anyone. I, I know it's true for a lot of people who aren't disabled as well, and it shouldn't be the case for any of us. That should be a source of joy and a source of fulfillment. Um, and the fact that it is weaponized and that enables abuse um, is egregious and again, eugenics. Like 
it as as your sister said it it all comes back to eugenics doesn't it yeah that's my income assistance rant <laughs> yeah um for sure so last time you mentioned that um you've taken it upon yourself to galvanize queer and trans people um around this issue and around disability issues um, and justice in general. Um, so now it's it's been some time. What are your thoughts and feelings on on it now? Yeah, um, I I mean, for one thing, um, <laughs> I keep talking about yesterday's broadcast because it's fresh in my mind, but I we had uh, a number of uh, queer and LGBTQ um, people on yesterday's panel and it was it was really really nice um i think that um queer and trans communities need to recognize their <laughs> their stakes in this and it i'm thinking again of what we were talking about in, in relation to the language of body mind and you know queer and trans people are going to be disproportionately affected by the sunset clause of um, mental illness being a sole qualifying factor um, because A, transness has, continues to be um, pathologized directly um, and queerness has a long history of that, obviously, you know, with homosexuality being in the DSM um, for a long time. Um, and um, mental illness really does impact queer and trans people disproportionately because we do face systemic inequalities um, as compared to our cis and heterosexual counterparts. Um, but I, I want to get back to, you know, it's not just about the sunset clause. Um, C7 itself already is um, a concerning sticking point for queer and trans people. Um, we don't, in Canada, we don't have data on how disability affects queer and trans communities. Um, we don't. Um, disaggregate data um, by disability at all in Canada, um, as far as I'm, well, last I checked. Um, and we have very few studies on queer and transness and disability that isn't mental illness. Um, but anecdotally, I know a disproportionate amount of trans people, for example, who have chronic pain and uh, physical disabilities from thinking of binding in particular. <laughs> um, it's, you know, it has adverse health effects and um, you do it too long and uh, without safe precautions and it leads to physical disability. Um, the effects of hormone therapy are also understudied um, and there's a lot of anecdotal evidence that um, it increases various risks for blood clotting, uh, heart disease, uh, pulmonary disease. Like we, we genuinely don't know how it impacts even cis people who have to go on hormone therapy. Um, 
so like when when I think about my my trans kin I sometimes kind of like I want to shake you by the shoulders and be like you are like disability and transness and queerness should be in direct relation with one another um we are seen as similarly deviant and similarly undesirable and we could fight that so much better with one another and I think that this time around with with the current organizing against the sunset clause um I'm seeing a lot more queer and trans engagement in that. Um, I also wanna see more engagement in disability justice in general from queer people. Um, thinking about like, we're, we all we all wanna go to queer dance parties. I know I would love to go to one at any point in the future ever. Um, but like, if you're, if you're planning those things and you're not considering COVID and disabled people, like, what are you doing? <laughs> what What are you doing um, to take care of community in the time of a pandemic uh, that is still ongoing? Like just because our government, I don't know how it is in Alberta, but in BC, we have the dreadful Bonnie Henry. Oh yeah, you have like Kenny and everyone. I do know how it is there. <laughs> if you don't test, if you don't test. That's what we discovered you know? too. That's how, but yeah, like there's there's no COVID. We're not testing, so there's no COVID. Um, yeah, and I, I really see, you know, um, a lack of care from queer people about, you know, their disabled queer community in believing government information about, like, when have any of us ever believed government information? Like, I thought we knew better than that. Um, and just because it's inconvenient, uh, we, we really should be like fact checking these things. And again, COVID is mass disabling and it encourages the government to further neglect and leave behind disabled people when that's what everyone wants to do anyways. Um, so yeah, I really, I really want to see queer and trans people like engaging in those systems of care that we were talking about. Like, how do we keep people alive? It's those systems of care. And that relates to the pandemic that relates to what we're all doing, uh, with and for each other, um, to protect all of our health, please. Um, we can we can have virtual dance parties. I know they're not the same, but it's one thing that we can do, and we can we can keep talking about uh, the realities that queer and trans disabled people are facing. Um, you know, especially in unaffirming families and communities. I am personally very worried that um, queer people that are in homophobic and transphobic households and communities are going to feel more pressured to access made. We already have alarming rates of suicide and attempted suicide. Um, if it's state sanctioned and you go to a doctor who is 
you know, homophobic or transphobic. Um, like they're, they're going to see it as a net benefit. That's, that is a reality and it's a very dangerous one. Um, whether it's, you know, a queer person is depressed or experiences altered states of reality um, or chronic pain that a doctor sees as grievous and irremedi irremediable, like it is very concerning. Um, and again, you factor in the mature minor track as well. If it is an unsupportive household, um, that to me, that is alarming. Like we only just made conversion therapy illegal. Yeah. It only just happened. Um, <laughs> and then also uh, there is the, the blood donation ban that was yeah quote unquote rescinded um rewritten it was yeah. rewritten um it was rewritten yes definitely check that out and we will be talking about that um in an upcoming episode at some point but there there's it, like like you keep saying there's there's that connection between disability queerness transness in so many different ways it's just it's neon signs glaring at us yeah at, at all angles yeah. and I don't know why everyone's got like super strong sunglasses <laughs> it's it's true it's true everyone's wearing you know their their tinted blue lenses against that neon um yeah yeah that's really what I wanted to address with that um yeah trans and queer people should be in kinship with disabled people fighting this um and again like i'm really i'm really glad like that has actually started um i think that that has um taken uh, a good step forward from what i saw last year with queer and trans people not talking about it at all unless they were already in the disability community um but yeah, I think, I think there's a long way to go with a lot of ingrained ableism, um, queer and trans people trying to distance themselves from disability uh, rather than saying like, we are all considered deviant and undesirable to the colonial project. And as we should be, um, I, I am personally very happy to be undesirable to colonial capitalism, thank you. Um, but but we can do a lot more to be in solidarity with one another. I guess just to reiterate, just because it's so important, is um, again, I'm I'm gonna give you full reign over the listeners. If you want to give them, how exactly can we make sure that folks who feel like made is the only option for them? How do we make sure that they know that they are valued and whole and worth living i mean one like in personal community like actually just affirming that you know it is it is a reality that these lives are undervalued and under supported and what these people are going through is not you know um like a projection or um some kind of uh dissonance within them it's it's like systemic violence that we're all facing um, but on a, a larger scale, like 
centering access, centering disability justice and mutual aid. And um, I mean, when it comes down to it, abolition um, is a disability justice project and disability justice is an abolitionist project. Um, so recognizing that and getting involved on like local levels, that's where change is going to happen is local organizing. Um, getting involved in local defund and abolition projects, getting involved in local tenants unions, um, local mutual aid projects of all sorts. Like uh, so many really great thinkers I'm coming to mind as Harsha Walia um, remind us that if we are each pulling at one thread on this colonial project, it will unravel if we're doing it together. Like everything is connected. And while that can be overwhelming, it also should be inspiring and motivating is if you're pulling on, you know, tenants' rights, um, if you're pulling on access to food, if you're pulling on access to social spaces, you are working in tandem with people who are pulling on all of the other threads. And we can, like, we can do this if we do it collectively. We can organize against violence and for fulfilling and exciting and peaceful lives um, if we're just doing it together. So yeah, like really like get involved in local organizing um, in some capacity. And, you know, I, I live in the Bible Belt of BC. <laughs> um, it, can, it can be hard to get things going. We run a very small like community fridge and pantry, but every time it's stopped, like everyone is really clear on how helpful and fulfilling and genuinely like changing it is. We supply political reading and we supply food. And that can be a place to start for a community that maybe doesn't have a strong organizing base. You know, it's, it's much easier to organize in Vancouver than it is in Chilliwack but we can each do a small piece wherever we are. And as soon as you start doing that small piece, you realize that everyone doing it is connected in some way. Like I'm connected to people across so-called Canada and across the world because of mutual aid organizing and because of abolition organizing. And it, it is very much a fulfilling project. Um, even as an exhausted and burnt out cripple as I am. Um, so yeah, on, on that scale, like get involved locally, do things locally. Um, and also, again, just tune into the disability filibuster, listen to what disabled people are saying. Um, go to disabilityfilibuster.ca, as Terrence said, and just like, we have so much to say and we have so much energy to give when we are given that space and um, it's really worth listening to. Yeah, it, it really, really, truly is. Um, and once you, once you see the connections, it's, it's um, 
not to like use the matrix which has been co-opted by so many groups um of varying i don't know what to call them but you know um once you once you see it you you can't unsee it once you yeah yeah once you see that everything's connected yeah there's no going back yeah i do love the matrix not gonna lie it has been co-opted but it is so helpful yeah I do love it. <laughs> oh, it's an end. And if you rewatch it like through a trans uh, lens, yes. <laughs> it's even more amazing. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Um, I did have like, if you want it, because you mentioned sex work a little bit. And I know that that is like also a part of um, things. So if you wanted to talk at all about that, you can go ahead. If not, that's all good. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe I will address that briefly. Um, did you have any like specific questions on it or do you, do you just want me to yeah, go on a rant? So <laughs> I, I'm loving when these, these rants, you can just go on a rant, go for it. Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of disabled people, um, turn to sex work as one of the only ways that we can make an income. Um, whether that's because we're already on disability income assistance and we need to make income under the table um, or um, a lot of disabled people and the number is rising are denied access to disability income assistance or any income assistance at all. Um, and so uh, these criminalized um, professions are like disabled people are overrepresented in them. Um, and I, I mean, I think that sex workers are <laughs> the blueprint for solidarity um, and for community organizing and abolitionist dreaming and um, a lot of, a lot of things that are now entering some mainstream or mainstream leftist conversations. Um, I use leftist loosely, uh, weird, weird word, weird identity, but like, you know, people who are not conservative and life denying. Um, but yeah, I do, I do think that sex workers are the blueprint because um, we, I, as a, a longtime sex worker, um, we have to engage in ideas of community safety and community access um, that are a unpalatable to other people and circumvent systemic um, violence and erasure. Um, and I, I hope that maybe we can get some voices on the on the filibuster who might want to talk about this. Um, but I think that um, sex workers are a group of people that are constantly told that our lives are not valuable and don't bring any worth to our communities. And we're constantly struggling against that and fighting that stigma and that perception. Um, sex workers have radical ideas of community safety. Um, again, not being able to go to the police, a lot of sex workers are various uh, forms of abolitionists 
um, because we know that policing is unsafe and uh, perpetuates um, violence and inequality. Um, and I, I see sex workers as um, radicalizing the idea of what access can mean. Like, what, what are we talking about when we mean access? Are we talking about physical accessibility? Are we talking about uh, financial accessibility? Are we talking about cognitive disability? And sex workers are often talking about all of those and more. Um, a lot of sex workers have informal education. Um, I know myself, I am a high school dropout and I hesitate saying that anytime I am anywhere because, you know, when people talk about dropping out, they're talking about college most of the time. And like, I didn't, I didn't even get that far. Um, and, but like, obviously I have a lot to say on a lot of things. I've done a lot of research. I've done a lot of community research, um, as well. And, um, like sex workers inherently radicalize the ideas of what um, research and knowledge systems look like. Uh, we are engaged in um, like oral um, record keeping uh, when it comes to, you know, who's safe, who's unsafe in the community. Um, like all of these things, sex workers have so much to contribute to like every movement and every um, organizing practice. And again, like with everything being connected, um, queer people are also overrepresented in sex work. Um, obviously, poor people are overrepresented in sex work. Um, I really center survival-based sex workers, sex workers who are uh, street-based um, sex workers who are drug users and like doing their sex work to fund their drug habits. You know, the people who are seen as completely unvaluable, who are seen as a risk, who are seen as unsafe for community. Where do those perceptions come from? Um, and, and again, they come from eugenics. They come from who is allowed to exist, who is allowed to live, who is allowed to make more people <laughs> like sex workers are um at risk in all of those endeavors and um i just i feel like uh every organizing project can stand to listen to what the sex worker community is saying about anything they're doing um because sex workers will see the holes where they or their communities are left behind and they'll be able to like give suggestions for fixes as well they've like we've all been organizing for our collective safety for so much longer than almost anyone else out there with the exception of drug users. And again, the overlap is tremendous. Um, yeah, that's my, that's my like five minute off the cuff sex worker talk um, as it relates to really disability justice. Yeah, because uh, again, as, as we keep coming back to, it's, it's all connected. And that's, that's something that I, um, yeah, I'm really, really glad that you've um, illustrated so, so well. Also, I know that you are um, currently raising money for a new wheelchair. If you wanted to talk about that, you can. If you don't want to talk about that, because it's weird to talk about the whole, it's, it's always weird to, to talk about that. I can just, yeah. <laughs> I Money can do is that weird. Whole spiel. <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to. 
I'm happy to chat about it briefly. I am raising money for a new wheelchair and, you know, the fundraising is actually going incredibly well. I have very little to do with it because I am chronically exhausted, um, but um, I am trying to raise a total of $35,000 and the last update I got that is at just over 22000 which is, I've never seen that amount of money all at once in my life like that's that's how much money I make in a year um pretty much on disability like just a little bit more than that that's how much I get in a year on disability um but I am raising the money for a new wheelchair because my current wheelchair is quite literally held together with zip ties and bungee cords like it's on a on a structural level it is concerning um and I also have really messed up rotator cuffs which are surprisingly essential for wheeling yourself um so yeah my my one of my partners helped put together this fundraiser and a number of people have held mini fundraisers and I know that gay wire has <laughs> has been uh very kindly um spreading the word on that which has been uh noted and appreciated um but there is it's on chuffed.org and I'm sure y'all have been linking to it and and can do so on this on this one as well the link can be found uh on gaywire's instagram in the link tree it should be in there awesome um yeah so that's at gaywire uh cjsr on instagram uh linking bio <laughs> yeah um we're still we're still working on on building up our resources there um because the social media aspect is something that i <laughs> we have like for the free fridge that I help run we have an Instagram and a Twitter and like it is slim pickings there um my co-organizer and roommate is much better at updating the Instagram than I am at updating the Twitter um but yeah this this new wheelchair will allow me to engage in more mutual aid um last summer we gave out masks both for COVID and also the wildfire season out here is terrible. Um, so, you know, it's it's much easier to do uh, that kind of direct um, mutual aid when I can get around without putting my body through <laughs> its own trials and tribulations every time. Um, yeah, my, my wheelchair is just very sad and I am very, very hopeful that I will get a new wheelchair in the coming months, hopefully within the year. <laughs> that would, yeah, I very much hope that your fundraiser goes well for that and that um, within the year you have a functional wheelchair that's not held together with zip ties and bungee cords, you know, held together with whatever wheelchairs are supposed to be held together with. Nuts and bolts. Just nuts, little, bolts, <laughs> nuts, welding, bolts and little no bits. more prayers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Save my yeah, hope for always, something else. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You don't have to put so much intention into just keeping everything together. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, it has been lovely talking to you as always as it was last time. Um definitely again tune into the disability filibuster um events or watch the old ones um there's there's a lot like you can just put them on in the background and you can like start cleaning your house it's it's amazing you'll you'll learn a lot that's what i do 
Yeah. <laughs> if I'm not hosting, that's what I do. <laughs> yeah. So disabilityfilibuster.ca for that um, again. You just heard myself, Terrence Adams, speaking with Q Lawrence about MAID, disability justice, and how all of that is chugging along in so-called Canada. If you would like to donate to Q's wheelchair fundraiser, the link is in the Gaywire bio in the link tree, and also be sure to share it around. And that brings us to the end of this episode, the first podcast stream exclusive episode, I hope you found it interesting, engaging, and relevant. Be sure to check out disabilityfilibuster.ca for more information and to watch archival footage of sessions. Also, any information about upcoming sessions will be there. I cannot express to you how soul-healing these sessions can be, crip space made by and for disabled folks that utilize all the principles of disability justice. Which, if you don't know those principles, you can check out sinsinvalid.org and check out all of their literature that cover those topics wonderfully. Gaywire is produced for CJSR 88.5 FM in Amiskwitiwiskaigen on Treaty 6 territory and Region 4 of the Métis Nation of Alberta, colonially known as Edmonton, Alberta, land which has been the trial the traditional home and traveling ground of many diverse peoples, including but not limited to the Blackfoot, Anishinaabe, Nakoda Sioux, Dene, Soto, Cree, and Métis people. All of us at Gaywire encourage you to think critically about the structures of power we reside within, your role in and around it, and what you can do to challenge the damaging legacies and mechanisms of colonialism in your day-to-day. Reconciliation is not a one-time thing, it's an ongoing practice. Please, please, please check out some amazing Indigenous folks that we've interviewed to learn about decolonization, traditional tattooing, and what it means to be Two-Spirit by checking out the interviews with Gabe Calderon and Ashley Cardinal, and also by checking out Gabe Calderon's work, uh, including an upcoming novel called Magotis, which will be released by Arsenal Pulp Press uh, very soon. I do not know the exact timeline, but it's within months. And also please do check out Ashley Cardinal's work as a nail tech and also a traditional tattoo artist. Follow us on all the platforms that you want, podcast platforms included, um, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you download your podcasts. You can find us online at gaywire.transistor.fm and on Facebook, Twitter, at Gaywire, and at Gaywire, CJSR on Instagram. Let us know what you think of the show. Hit up the DM sometime, or if you'd rather be fancy, you can also email gaywire at cjsr.com. And you never know, you just might get to be a part of the show. Our artwork is by Travis Erickson. Original music by Doug Hoyer and Catherine Hiltz. Stay tuned next for a funky little dance, but only in your brain. Until next time, keep it breezy and... Please stay on the line. <laughs>